Hi gang, you're listening to Bird Talks. Uh, I just want to say, if you guys are loving what you're hearing, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. That would be super helpful. Also, if you haven't been to the website, bird-talks.com, you should go there because there's some really cool stuff on there. We've got some beautiful photography of the amazing women we're interviewing, as well as some extra links. You can check out our Instagram. That's all there. So yeah, if you've got a second, head over to our site. So with that, we've got a new episode today. And the question for you, Steph, is what would you commit to for 60 years? My immediate answer is nothing. And then I feel very badly because I should say my marriage, which I am committed to. Uh, and also, I suppose, that's probably it. I like how the marriage was second. Second on your list. For 60 years, I just sort of think like I'll be dead by then. So, you don't know that. You don't know that. That's true. I could still be alive. But committing to something for 60 years and really seeing it through is something you do not see every day. You hardly see it at all anymore, I feel like. So that's why I was super impressed hearing about this week's bird, Sister Mary Hodges. Yeah. So Sister Mary Hodges is obviously a sister and a world that is very separate to mine now I guess in terms of like religion and stuff but it was really interesting talking to her when she when we were talking about this exact topic like she's been a nun for 60 years of her life and she talks about how you know you have to commit to things you commit to a marriage and she's committed to the faith just like you would anything else whether it's a career or not and that perspective of like you can't just jump around like you can't be wishy-washy and like do something for a few years and then do something else for a few years and you know anything I mean everything just takes commitment so it was just kind of mind-boggling like how she compared it to a marriage where then I could I understood it I was like oh yeah like you you and you could commit to somebody something you're in it for like the pitfalls and the high times but you know, when things are shitty, it doesn't mean you throw in the towel. Totally. I think that's something you don't hear about a lot. And what she talks about are the real benefits that come from that commitment, despite the hard parts. But the certainty and the comfort almost that comes from making the decision and knowing that you're just going to stick to it. I can't even get into that mindset right now. I don't know. I don't know if I'm. If like, if somebody said what you're doing today, you're going to be doing for the next like 40 years. Like that's kind of crazy. But I don't think you can look at it in that way. I don't think you can look at anything that way. Otherwise, you'll go slightly insane. You just have to to love it enough to want to keep going for now, right? Yeah, totally. And I feel like that's it. Uh, And then one day you'll wake up and you'll be like, "Holy shit! I've been doing this for 60 years." Yeah, I'm a nun who does amazing work in the community, and I'm awesome. Yeah, so there's one other thing I wanted to talk about with Sister Mary is she works with this organization called PrEP, and what it does is help men who were on life sentences in jail who have been released for whatever reason. Um, They help them integrate back into society. So she's, like, at these prisons, like, every week working with these guys who you know, after however many years in jail, have to figure out how to, like, get a job, make money, you know, it's... Use an iPhone. Use an iPhone. If you've been in prison for that many years, how do you even know about an iPhone or technology? 
Yeah, it's mind-boggling. So that's just something she does as well, because she's amazing. Her lack of judgment is very inspiring. Also, how I asked her what are her own kind of goals for her life, and it was really nice to hear that they're just as ordinary as everybody else's. Like, you know, she wants to have um, a routine exercise schedule. She wants to eat well. She needs time for herself. So, you know, it was just like a mind-blowing conversation for me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So with that, let's go into our interview with Sister Mary Sean Hodges. I don't even know where to begin with you. It's <laughs> such a fascinating story. Do you think being a sister allowed you to be somebody that you wouldn't have been able to be otherwise? Yes, I do. Meeting new people, having new opportunity, getting a broader view of life, experiences. I entered the convent when I was 17 and that was in 1958. Are you familiar with Vatican II Council? No. That's a meeting of all the major bishops and cardinals of the whole world that go and meet in Rome over a given topic and whenever there's a Vatican Council it takes years and years to have the effect of the council spread throughout the world. So Vatican Council started in 1962. It was called by Pope John the 23rd in, I think, 1958. He was elected Pope then. And his whole view was open up the doors and the windows to the church. And immediately there were a lot of changes in the church for what he was wanting to do just to go back an instant of why this needed to be done is the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s stopped a lot of growth in the religions because it was such a divide between Catholic and the Protestant religion started then then in order to keep the two separate both made their rules and didn't want it but to get confusing And so they didn't change. And so the religious garb of the church was the long habits, very formal long habits. The Catholic Church did a Latin Mass, and the doctrine of the Catholic Church just got laid in stone from the 1600s to 1962. There was no change whatsoever in that time. There wasn't. There wasn't. And so the Pope said, we have to adapt our church to the modern world. And so that was what the purpose of the council was, Mm -hmm. is to update the church to today's world. Immediate effect was a lot of superficial things changed. For example, I entered the convent and went into the long habit and I was in the long habit for probably 10 years and one of the updating was make our dress appropriate for the time 
Another was the sisters at the time were not allowed to travel except by twos and you weren't allowed to go into homes. An example, my sister married in 1962 and I was in the north at the time, north meaning Bay Area. I asked if I could go to her wedding and I was told yes I could go. So I got to fly down and go to our convent which was San Gabriel and she could come see me after the wedding. I couldn't attend the wedding because that was secular. How did that make you feel? Like, how ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. You know, yeah. why would I travel down there to be in the convent while she's getting married and then I can come see her for 10 minutes after? Another concept was, when I entered, we were not allowed to have our own name because everything like that was secular pagan. So I had to give in three names that I wanted to be and it has to be after a saint and it usually had Mary in it. So what was that transition like? Was there a huge turmoil in your identity? Yeah, yeah, and a whole change from the idea that the world is a pagan world into the world is a sacred place and therefore we find our holiness, our redemption, our church within the context of the world. Whereas before Vatican II, all that was secular, therefore not holy. Incredible, huh? So that was the immediate impact. The greater impact of Vatican II, it's been more than 50 years since Vatican II, and the impact has been slow in growing and has very much impacted who the church is today. Did you ever have any moments of, maybe not regret, but just questioning whether this is what you want to continue doing or whether it is what you're supposed to be doing? I am sure I did. Was it anything that was monumental enough to say, hey, I'm considering going home? Uh, no. We lost a lot of sisters in early 70s, late 60s, left our congregation and formed their own group because they didn't feel we were moving fast enough with what Vatican II was saying to do. And you didn't want to go with them? No, I didn't. I didn't. I still have disagreements with some of the rules of our congregation, but not enough to say I don't want to do this. I mean, basically, I love what we do. On a day-to-day -day basis, what does it mean to be a sister? Um, that I belong to a community. I'm a Dominican sister. There are many, many different religious congregations and communities and each one was founded for a specific purpose. Each community has its own focus, its charism is what it's called, the gift for which it exists. Ours is preaching, Dominicans are preachers, and ours is to spread the gospel truth to the world. That's what we are founded for. So then moving forward to the work you're doing with PrEP. Prison Reentry Program. Yeah, so how, how did that even come about and your involvement in that? I think the story is kind of cute. When I got to be 60, I thought, 
I still want to be active in ministry and I still want to work and I, I had better change what I was doing then because otherwise I would be too old to want to do something new. So when I was 60 I stopped teaching and I took a year off school and looked at what else I would do. And I think a strong influence was my brother, who's 10 years younger, is alcoholic and he would go into a lot of programs about the alcohol and he just went into homeless in the process of all of that and I kept thinking okay how can my brother want this so much and work to deal with his alcohol and yet still go back into alcohol and I realized you have to do it differently insanity doing the same thing over and over and he didn't know how to go into a different situation and the nice thing about my brother is when my father was passing we needed somebody to take care of my dad and we said Paul will you come live with dad none of us could and so Paul moved from LA to San Luis Obispo area and lived with my dad. It was enough to change my brother's life. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. So he's sober 20 years. So that inspired you to do the Yeah, that, that little bit of a change and motivation and support. I went to Arizona and I worked for Catholic Charities, volunteered, and a sister there was doing prison ministry and so I said, can I go with you to the prisons? And all she did was go into and visit inmates. And I just liked it. So I, I pretty well decided that was where I wanted to do it. And I can't say it was any brainstorm. It just happened. At the time, I was a big runner. I came from Arizona to do the LA Marathon. And I went to see Sister Suzanne Jabro, who had begun and established the, what's called detention ministry. And so I went to see her and I said, I want a job here. And, I, and she says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do reentry, work with people who when they come out of prison. And she said, it's the open position that we have. They had hired two former inmates who could do a lot of the work, but they couldn't put a program together. They just needed somebody with the skills to put a program together. I got hired immediately. And then that idea of restorative justice became a known term. Detention is negative. Hold a person in. Detain them. Restorative justice is hold a person responsible for their actions but make it a healing relationship. So if I hurt you, I need to be accountable for it and my accountability may mean I go to prison but it also may mean I just work with you and heal the relationship of the brokenness so that it heals you and it heals me and we decide together what's my accountability, what do I have to do to make up for the crime. It sounds a little bit like therapy. 
I'm going to say it's not therapy so much, and I'm going to even say it's not like spiritual direction as much as rehabilitation, which is what the prison wants, but which is also necessary. So as I began to work in the prisons, I began really working with the lifers, those who are in there for the serious crime. And I realized that hardly anyone is in prison without having been a victim when they were a child. And it was that victimization of themselves that had to be changed to becoming whole in themselves. So there's a, a saying that I use a lot. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. So if I'm your parent and I just continually batter you, I'm always yelling at you, and I am physically beating you, and always saying to you, you're no good. You're going to grow up that way. You're going to grow up knowing, believing, you're no good because that's what you've learned from me as a parent. The work I do in the prisons now is mainly looking at what was my home life like that made me grow up and take a path into crime. Do you think there's awareness around that that they have already? I don't think they put two and two together. I don't think so. Here's why. Because growing up like that is the norm for them. So that's the way life is. And that's the way they grew up. And that's the way their dad grew up. How do they see themselves in prison? Do they think it's fair, a fair action? Is it what they expected? It is fair. And most of them will, not at the beginning, not for, I'm going to even name the first five to ten years, they think prison is the worst thing that could happen to them. And it's mainly because they still are in the anger, the rage, the having been beaten. And so if I've been beaten down so much and I go to prison, I'm going to stay in that mode of everything is beating. So they look at officers that way. They gravitate toward fellow inmates who are like-minded to that. And then, gradually, they come to realize that there's more to life than that, and I need to look at why I came here and begin to do things different. When I work with this in prisons, I call it a moment of transformation. And I say, okay, Name, when was an exact moment when you realized you needed to change your life? Mm -hmm. I give an example. I was in prison for five years. I had a fight with my celly. I got sent to the SHU, security housing unit. So I was in a locked down cell. And I was in there for a little bit of time. And then I realized I could die in prison if I if I continue to fight while I'm in here and if I continue to do the same things. I am never going to get out of here. And that really is a true story for many of them. And another part of it that causes them to change is their son or daughter will come visit them. Mm -hmm. And when they see the son or daughter, a lot of them will, you know, Daddy, are you going to come home? The person realizes, no, I'll never come home unless I change my life.
And then they begin to see that I can change my life and there are programs available to change my life. Do you think that it's a genuine change? Yeah. Uh -huh. are, are there any that really... Shouldn't ever get out? Yeah. 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 And it's interesting in my work because I get a ton of mail and Mark, um, I've met him in about three different prisons and when I first got him all his letters were just superficial and he wasn't doing anything. But he kept in touch all the time. Because I would write him. So he would write me, I would write him. So personal letters. I would say, okay, take this course. And he wouldn't do it. He didn't do it. And then a couple years later, I could see a change happening in him. And then I could say to him, okay, will you take this? And they'd send it to him. And he would begin to do it. Then I could see the change. And it just, it takes time for all that to happen. Do you feel a great deal of responsibility for these men? I can't say I feel responsible, but I feel I have the gift to offer them what will help them to get out. No, I don't feel the weight of responsibility. And that's, I think that's nice. Is there any fear of being there? I've never had it, but I, I think part of that is growing up in L.A. and my family. You know, at the time, we didn't even lock our doors. We walked to school. We didn't see violence. I didn't live in violence. But I am a person who's not afraid in that kind of fear. When I became a runner, I lived in Oakland. I would run the streets of Oakland. Everybody said, you can't do that. And I thought, I'm not giving up my running because I should be afraid. But I used my common sense. I wouldn't run on a dark street. I wouldn't run at the wrong time. I like this idea of common sense and fear. I feel like there's a certain level of irrationality with fear. Uh, there is, and, and it, everything. Yeah. yeah, and I have my fears, but not in that way. I'm not efficient enough. <laughs> I don't do enough. I come from a very work-driven family. I'm very work-driven. So you feel this need of accomplishment? Yeah, I do. Is there something that's still ahead of you that you're working towards? Yeah, uh, and as a teacher too. I always felt I could, had more to do. I mean, I was a very driven teacher that the job is never done mm -hmm. and there's always more to do. I'm, I'm not relaxed in that way at all. And this job too is intense. There's always more to do. So where is the balance between you as a person and the work that you do? Work. As I get older, I, I need to take time off for myself and that's becoming more evident and more strong. Do you think it, there's that pressure specifically with what you do? I don't feel that way. I just feel whatever a person chooses to do, whether I choose married life and I find a, the person that I want to live with, that's a choice I make and then I'm not open anymore to anything else. For me, that's the choice I made and that's the commitment I make and the same in religious life. 
It's the choice I make and this is what I need to live true to. But can you not change your choice? Yeah, yeah. Like I could have left at any time. I could have. I wouldn't call that wrong. But I do like what I've chosen and do want to be faithful to that. It's like marriage though too. Once a person marries, it rules out everything else. If I want to stay faithful to my marriage. Even if I choose a career, a photographer. If I want to be faithful to it, then I need to be faithful to my photography and not say, well, I want to do that and I want to do that and I want to do that. Because then I jump all over the place and I'm not good at anything. These days, I do encounter a lot of people who you know, spend a few years doing one thing and a few years doing another thing. And, and it, it seems to be sold in a way that you should be free to try all these things or do this. But then I look back at like my parents' generation and I feel like there is something to be said for sticking to something and going through the heart, the thick and the thin. And I feel these days it, it's a little, well, oh, I just don't enjoy that anymore, so I'm going to do something else. And you kind of lose the capacity to deal with those things. Today there isn't the stability that I grew up in. My mother was a, I, I had a very strong lesson from my mom. My dad was a harsh man. He was not an easy person. He, he wasn't physically abusive to my mom, but he was verbally abusive to my mom. He was verbally abusive to us. And at one point, my mom, she didn't leave my dad in the sense of, I'm going to go divorce you, but she left my dad in the sense of, she traveled around to my brothers and sisters and her brothers and sisters. And so she was gone from the house for six months. At the end of the six months, she came home and she said, this is where I belong and this is my home and I'm not giving up my home because of my husband. And then she stood up to him from then on and he stopped. And that was a strong lesson for me. Was there a positive change in him as well? Yeah, he stopped yelling at her because he needed to be told he couldn't do it. And she didn't stand up to him. That's amazing. It is amazing. Especially for that generation. Yeah. So what was the big lesson that you took from that? Stand up for what I want, and what's mine is mine, and hold on to it, and don't give it up, and don't let somebody take it from me. It was a beautiful lesson for me, for her to come home and say, this is my home, and this is what I want. It's so nice to think that you can change anything at any time, even though you've spent so many years doing something, I assume, same with the inmates. Anything can change, really, uh -huh. and it's up to you to recognize it and take that step. Uh -huh. What is something that you want to bring into your life? A better balance. A better balance. Um, I do need to. Um, one of the things I have done, and I'm getting much, much better, is I was a runner for 25 years, and then I stopped running probably, probably 10 years ago. 
and um, and then I stopped my exercise. I am realizing now, and now means probably the last six months, four months, I have to exercise. The older I get, the less I'm going to want to do it, number one, and then number two, the less I'm going to be able to do it. And number three, I need it. So this is how driven I was. I, I go to church in the morning, and then and I finish at 7 o'clock, and then I would go into work, and I would get to work at 7.30. And I knew that I would never stop and take time to exercise. So now, I go to church, and I finish at 7, and I come home, and I go out walking for 45 minutes. And then after that, I go into work. It puts me in stronger traffic, so I lose more time. I get there later. But I have to do it because it's good for me, because I like it, because it settles my head, because it makes me a nicer person. (laughs) So I have done that to change. And then the second is on, on the weekend, and even during the week, take time and do things for myself. And I figure the work is always going to be there. It's, it's never going to change. So do the fun things. What's the best piece of advice you could give? A couple things. Number one, be true to my own self. Be, who, be truthful to myself and be truthful to you and hold to my own values. As a teacher, I think the greatest gift a teacher can be to the students is to, to come to know who you are. And it took me a long time to get there, to know who I am and to appreciate it. With all my flaws and all my mess-ups. And, and this has been good for me in our work because our men have messed up. But it's precisely because they have messed up and because I have messed up that I can come to know who I am today in my mess up and become the better person. And that does enter into my Catholic faith. I am a very strong believer in I am forgiven for everything I did. First and foremost by my God and second by myself. It's harder to forgive myself than to know I am immediately forgiven by my God. To let go of the messes and to become who I am because of the messes. Are you at a point now where you let go of those messes? More so. I'm always working on it. <laughs> yeah. Do you take that moment to look back at your life and just marvel at it and wonder where it all went? How, how would you s- summarize it, I guess? It is a marvel. It is a marvel. The sisters all celebrate the same as married couples do, like 25 years of married life. We celebrate 25 years of profession. And we have a big ceremony for that. Significant for me was when I reached 50 years of profession, like a 50th wedding anniversary. And I just 
totally was in marvel that I have re lived religious life for 50 years and that my God has kept me for 50 years and that, that's just a marvel. And, and I think it's the same thing for a married couple. The marvel of we are married for 50 years and the grace that that means to be able to say that that's true. In today's world, it doesn't happen much, anything, for any amount of time. We, we just don't have that kind of a stableness anymore in people. I don't think in most generations, including yours, how long will you stay in a job? And would it be a lifetime job, or will you change your jobs three or four times mm -hmm. to have various experiences in jobs and to open it up in many, many different ways is a marvel. Mm -hmm. It's all a mindset. If you stayed in the same job, you can see it as being repetitive and boring, uh -huh. or you can choose to mm -hmm. make it unique. Yeah. yeah. That's a lesson I, I have learned, and I say this to the men every time I see them. I give it, the workshop I give is called Insight, and I will always start with, how many of you have been to my Insight workshop before? And five or ten will raise their hand, and I say, okay, I challenge you to to participate fully today, and to see what am I going to learn today that I didn't learn yesterday, and I'm not going to call this boring because I had it before. I think that helps a lot on my daily life, that this is not repetition, it's what am I learning today from it? What's the experience teaching me? And I think that's important. I used to get from a lot of the men, you know, I went to AA and I know all this and I don't need it. And I'm thinking, ooh, all of us need it every single day. We need to learn from what we do. Well, I don't know if there's much I can say that I don't still need to learn because I've done it before.